0: Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on October 14th, 2009. I'm Steve Mirsky. And in this episode, we'll talk about some of the articles featured in the new issue, the October issue of Scientific American magazine. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Mariette DiCostina is the editor-in-chief of Scientific American magazine. We spoke in her office. Hi, Mariette. Hi, Steve. So tell us about some of the highlights in this issue. Of course, every page is a highlight. (laughs) But what are some of the things that really uh, jump out at you?
1: Well, the first one, when we speak of highlights, we have to start with the cover story, which this issue is by Gary Sticks, one of our longtime staff editors, and it is called Turbocharging the Brain. And what do we mean by turbocharging? Well, lots of us are a little older than we used to be. I said,
0: we I think Steve. everybody's a little older than they used That's
1: to be. Well, many, you know, it, it, the big force known as the baby boomers are all reaching the, you know, the lowest of uh, the youngest of us are, are 45 and oldest up, up into the uh, early 60s now. And many of us are starting to think about, hey, you know, tough economy, gotta keep our edge. And we're thinking, what are ways we can do that? Now, students have been doing this sort of thing for years as well. People have been taking no-dose and slogging coffee uh, to get through their all-nighters. But now the question is, can science actually provide you with a better brain in a pill?
0: And that is really the question, as opposed to uh, the the efforts by a lot of people to sell substances that they say will enhance your cognitive power. I mean, there's, based on the article, there's some evidence for some enhancement in some cases. But, I mean, if you're a reasonably healthy, intelligent person, can you really boost your brain power, whatever that kind of means, by taking a pill?
1: I think as usual, and as you rightly point out, in science, it's never yes, no. You know, yes, you can boost your brain with a pill, but what do you mean by boosting? And what kind of boost do you need? For some people, maybe maybe I'm bad at remembering where I left my car keys, for instance. Maybe I would like to boost my brain by having a better memory. Or maybe for other people, they're having trouble with focus. They can't bring, you know, what's called flow to the problem of it, uh, to to a problem that they're trying to work on. They can't really concentrate on it. So when we speak of a better brain or a stronger brain, for each of us, I think it means slightly different things. And for science, it also means slightly different things, because you, you can't, with a blunt instrument and, let's face it, a pill that affects one kind of chemical signaling, either production of that chemical signaling or absorption or use of it, one kind of pill can't solve all of those issues at the same time.
0: And a lot of these uh, enhancers, you know, I'm going to use enhancers in in uh, air quotes here, Um seem to work in a similar way they're they're basically neurotransmitter uptake inhibitors in, from one side of the synapse to the other they're they're keeping neurotransmitters around
1: yeah let's break that down for folks Steve those so a synapse right First of all what's a neuron and what's a synapse a neuron is a nerve cell a, a cell in the brain. And it is involved in some kind of communication with other fellow nerve cells. The synapse is the gap between those nerve cells. And what one nerve cell does to another is release signaling uh, compounds. They, you know, signaling chemicals that can send messages from one to the next. And it proceeds down in a chain. And that's part of what creates memory processes or attention or focus or the other processes in the brain the systems that you're talking about are specifically related to a chemical signaler called dopamine which is involved in many of the cognitive enhancers or brain enhancers that we're talking about today and they work in basically two different ways one way is you can inhibit the um the down the chain um nerve cell from reuptaking that uh that dopamine that extracellular material and that lets it stay out there longer so that it can continue to affect the cells around it. Another is you can, um, improve on the production of the dopamine. The, the effect is similar. You've increased the signaling power of that particular chemical.
0: What's the problem though? Shouldn't, why, why wouldn't that just be a great idea and it'll work and everybody should take it? Not just, uh, not just students who need all-nighters. Why, why don't we all take it? Like, why don't all the baseball players do steroids?
1: (laughs) Well, of course, anytime there is a new advance, there are going to be some people who say, why can't we all take it? And indeed, many scientists and many ethicists have started to explore this question. Should we, if if everything, if everybody has access, and if it's relatively harmless, why shouldn't we all have better brains? And one thing I can say, at least about the current state of the the technology, whatever you think about doing the best you can with what you're born with, assuming that you're you know, born without a pathology of some kind, is in the case of these particular enhancers that we're talking about, you and I just talked about one chemical signal, dopamine. That is one particular chemical that's used. There are a couple of hundred kinds of chemical signals and kinds of receptors. So any one of these pills is a rather blunt instrument. It is affecting some but not all. You can think about it this way. If you were playing with a marionette, and uh you were trying to pull one string, you'd get a piece of movement on that marionette, but not all of it, and it wouldn't be perfectly controlled. And that's how these sorts of drugs are for the brain right now. They have some effect and some people really swear by them. I know people who would would tell you, but terrific for maintaining focus. I, I can't vouch for that myself and different people are gonna have different experiences. And also I should point out that the brain has billions of such cells. So to wash it in some kind of chemicals year in and year out, we don't yet know what kinds of effects that might actually have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's uh, an interesting thing that comes up repeatedly in, in the article that I, I just wanted to bring up and it's in our little box of key concepts. Um, questions remain about whether any drug that tinkers with basic mental functioning will be sufficiently safe and effective to be consumed like coffee or tea. But aren't coffee and tea both also drugs that are neuroenh Well, they're not neuroenhancers, but they're certainly stimulants.
1: Well, they are stimulants, and many of the neuroenhancers or cognitive enhancers or brain boosters that we're talking about are also stimulants, things like Ritalin which is used to help uh, both kids with ADHD focus and adults indeed who have that problem and they are stimulants they help they help that focus be retained rather than be scattershot so they work slightly differently but they're all boosting the brain or boosting activity in the brain at some level but let's talk about since you've raised it you know whether things are safe or not safe some of the things you can do to improve your cognition day to day so you want to be a better thinker You don't necessarily want to take a drug or maybe you find this intriguing and the drugs aren't out there yet. Uh, what can you do in the meantime? Well, it's going to sound, you're going to laugh at me, Steve, but it's going to be like doctor's orders here. You can get a decent night's sleep. You can try to do that, and also very important and and increasingly shown to be so through lots and lots, ton, tons and tons, t- tens of tens of studies is the effect of um, exercise and regular aerobic activity on the brain. So if you you know, and that that's been shown definitively to uh, from studies dating back to the 1970s. That if you have some kind of regular aerobic activity, could be just brisk walking several times a week, it will improve your mental focus and memory, and it may even thwart illnesses such
0: as Alzheimer's. Yeah, but that's not as easy as taking a pill.
1: (laughs) No, it's not. But it also, you know, taking a pill is not necessarily going to improve your figure either. So you can do both at the same time if you take a nice walk.
0: It's interesting. So do you think that uh, 50 years from now we'll be disqualifying certain uh Nobel Prize nominees because they, they they had performance enhancing activity (laughs) in their past?
1: What an interesting question. I don't know that that's part of the Nobel criteria nowadays, you know, and and I, I don't know about the future, but I, but I can say that 50 years from now, um, those 200 or so different kinds of receptors and signaling combat, you know, signaling compounds that the brain uses will be better understood. And maybe 50 years from now, we will be able to say, well, today, maybe my focus is a little off and I want to take a pill to help myself get through the next few hours and know for a fact that that's what it will give you.
0: And uh, on, a, on a serious, a really serious note, of course, it's also the hope that they'll be able to use some of these same ideas to really help people with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia.
1: Absolutely. I mean, of course, many people in the public are intrigued by brain boosters for themselves because it's something that all of us maybe feel like we could use now and again. But the real goal of such therapies would be to help people whose lives are irreparably damaged by various kinds of dementia or memory disorders. And, you know, indeed back, back to the exercise uh, again that I mentioned earlier. If you do get regular routine activity in your day, even if you're starting in your thirties or forties and haven't done it sooner, it has been shown to be um, one way to thwart things like Alzheimer's and kinds of dementia. So again, there's something you can do about it today.
0: Let's talk about another really fascinating article in the issue. The title is Lost Cities of the Amazon by Michael Heckenberger. And uh, the idea here is that we have this, it's sort of a parochial view of the Amazon as as this Eden, this unsullied natural landscape. But the article says that, uh, the reality is that what we're looking at now in the Amazon is what's left after this civilization had, had really lived there for hundreds over a thousand years and had really settled it extensively. The, the thing that they did not do is leave a lot of stone structure like we find in the ruins in, in other parts of the world. So we sort of didn't appreciate that uh that a lot of people lived here and managed the landscape.
1: One of the yeah, this is the article you're speaking about lost cities of the Amazon by uh by Michael Heckenberger of the University of Florida. And one of the great surprises as we look at the and this was also this takes place in Brazil, this article, these are through various sites in in an area of Brazil is that um, surprisingly so, although today it looks like untouched jungle and we think about it as being, well, those areas that are untouched jungle, I should say, it actually was the site of dozens and dozens of what I want to call garden cities in the Amazon where people lived in rather dense, you know, twenty maybe twenty times as dense as the population is in there today, in clusters of towns. The towns had as many as a thousand people living in them, and they were networked with um, with roads. You could think about it as a, as a kind of a, a pod network or something, where there are little nexuses of people connected by roads between them, and these people rather intensively managed that area around them. They they did it in a number of ways. They grew manioc and they added, you know, human refuse to enrich the soil. So the soils are more enriched than the natural Brazilian jungle soils would be.
0: And that's one way they can tell that it was cultivated.
1: That's one way. Another way is um, they they grew orchards and they can see the remains of those orchards. And they had sort of the earthen curbs against the sides of the roads to mark them. And also the cities themselves had lo- these low walls that helped them discover This now very overgrown area of jungle.
0: And by the way, when we say roads, we're not talking about oh, some trail that's been you know blazed through the the deep uh, the deep growth. Some of these roads. Were as wide as a four-lane highway.
1: Yeah, it's quite remarkable that that they could do this without all the asphalt that we're so accustomed to thinking about, or the, the stones of the Roman roads, for instance, that we think about in other areas. But just because they're different, doesn't make them less advanced.
0: So, you know, we we Westerners tend to think of uh, ruins as being always, you know, something stony and hard and concrete and uh, These guys in the Amazon with their, with the cellulosic building materials. Um, but the, the, uh, techniques are still being used today. And so it's a really kind of interesting experiment because you can track how people are living there now and you can see evidence for how some of the things that the archaeological, archaeologists are finding probably came to be. And they, they, they talked about, you know, you, you pr- if, even if I say a, a, a thatched hut, you probably think of something that's, you know, 15 feet across. They're talking about building thatched huts that, that had areas, living areas of a thousand square meters.
1: Um, yes, they, and routinely even they had 250 square meters, uh, for the, that, that was for a chief that you're mentioning, Steve. But even routinely those people have it. Another way to look at the Kukuro who are still there is that here is a lifestyle in the jungle that was so successful that they're still able to do it thousand years later and still able to live within the land. So again, a great tip for sustainability for us. And as far as the thatched roofs go, it's quite extraordinary to me that they could build these in such a, when you say open area, it is a big open area that they've managed to get this kind of half a dome like structure up in. And um, those people still ongoing with those practices today can give us many lessons about how that, you know, how that could be used.
0: So we have a few astrophysics fans. There's an article about the fact that uh, there's some really strange entities out there that are, Not black holes, but black stars.
1: So what happens, you know, a black hole is something of so such infinite density that it creates a pocket in space where everything is sucked into it.
0: Even light. Even
1: light. But black stars are rather close to that, but not quite to that level of singularity. And this is an alternative theory about black stars and how they could differ from black holes.
0: And we've got uh, something on boosting vaccines. There's uh, all kinds of research that's going on right now to try to get vaccines to be more effective so that you can basically use less of them. And uh, there, that's a really promising area of inquiry.
1: Yeah, a huge area of inquiry. You probably all remember, folks who are listening and, and Steve, the early discussion about the H1N1 vaccine and whether or not you might need two of them to make that vaccine work properly. Well, vaccines boost our immune system, but sometimes they're not quite strong enough. So there is a new area of research into additions to vaccines. It's like a booster for your booster shot called adjuvants. It's from the Latin word adjuver, which means to help. They help these vaccines be more effective. And um if If we'd had adjuvants in those H1N1 vaccines for use in the US, there wouldn't have been a question about whether you needed one of them or two of them. We would have known that one would have been sufficient. So enormously promising area of research to improve what has already been an amazing public health benefit vaccines.
0: Some really interesting shorter pieces in the magazine. Uh, there's a, there's a piece about urban cycling and how just by examining the ratio of female to male cyclists in a community, you can tell what kind of success you're having in getting a significant percentage of people out of cars and onto bicycles. There's, well, there's my column, which, uh, I, I try to find a scientific explanation for why some people have, have really grasped on to the belief that the president of the United States was not born in the United States. And uh I got to tell you, that one's worth reading just so you can read the comments people have put up on the website. <laughs> and finally, what did you want to say something about that? Well, I
1: was just going to say and, and of course uh you know Michael Shermer always looking at belief systems uh, issue in and issue out too if you can't get enough of what some people will believe.
0: It's It's an amazing world out there, folks, and, you know, our one of our favorite uh, spaces in the magazine, 50, 100, 150 years ago.
1: I have a letter I'd love to read to you, Steve. It is from uh, Roger Cunningham in Pippa Passes, Kentucky, and Roger, responding to 50 and 100, said, I feel impelled to tell you that a long-anticipated moment in my life arrived this month when I opened the latest Scientific American to 50, 100, and 150 years ago, and saw the cover illustration from August 1959, the first issue of my subscription, when I was 11. I remember imagining a moment like this 50 years ago when I read this feature for the first time and thought had begun to occur to me again lately. It is still a striking experience to come upon the illustration, which rang such a bell with my memory. Essay's covers were a tamer in the Gerard Peel days. That's a former editor, folks. The prose was more formal, and people were still called man. This little entry is a window for me on a whole set of changes I've lived through the past half century, and I wanted to say to uh, Mr. Cunningham, thank you very much for your loyal patronage of Scientific American.
0: Awesome. In Pippa Passes, Kentucky. That's great. So uh, I was just going to talk about our 50, 100, and 150 years ago column, and I was thinking of something that uh, predates Roger by another 50 years, because there is a Fabulous item in the 1909 section, a hundred years ago called subway entertainment. So get a load of this and, and seriously, they, they gotta resurrect this idea. A hundred years ago, we wrote moving pictures are produced as is well known by a film traveling with intermittent motion before a projector or lantern, which throws successive views on the screen. The same results could be obtained if the pictures were stationary and the audience itself were in motion so as to view the pictures successfully. So let's really whip the audience around. But what they say is, an ingenious inventor has hit upon this scheme to relieve the monotony of subway travel. He proposes to mount a continuous band of pictures at each side of the subway and have these pictures successively illuminated by means of lamps placed behind them. On the subway wall, you would have basically the, the, uh, a galloping horse, stills of a galloping horse. But as you're sitting on the subway looking out the window, the horse <laughs> appears to be running. It's, it's great. Of course, what they didn't foresee the advent of a hundred years ago was the iPhone, because you, you, there's no such thing as subway monotony anymore. Everybody on the subway is fooling around with some electronic gadget and missing their stop. So, uh, but it's a great idea and I, I, I hope somebody does it somewhere. There's a, there's another great item from 150 years ago, a very optimistic item, which I'm not sure I, <laughs> I agree with, but it's called Power of the Press. And we wrote, In October of 1859, from ancient history, we learn that several nations, Egyptians, Assyrians, Greeks, and Romans, accomplished at successive periods great works and became great powers. They exhibited much intellectual and physical activity during their dominance, and then they became sluggish and finally degraded. By reposing on their laurels, they soon sunk into senility. We think no fears of such a result need to be entertained in the present age of progress, That's a really hubristic statement. Uh, The printing press, they wrote, will prevent this. It is the mighty agent which keeps the public mind in fermentation and prevents it from stagnating. I don't think they really thought about what the printing press was going to be busy printing.
1: Not just that, but I was thinking about the successor to the printing press, the electronic 24-7 world of the internet. And goodness knows people are only using the internet for
0: worthwhile intellectual adventures. Absolutely. (laughs) It's keeping the nation strong, engaged, and intellectually vigorous.
1: (laughs) What more can we say?
0: Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, it's not exactly the Loch Ness Monster, but a new species has been discovered in the loch, a species of blue-green algae. Story two, Italian researchers are developing a robotic spider that will examine a patient's colon. Story three, an analysis of 10,000 online passwords Found that the most common password was the simple 123456. And story four, just being able to look at a photo of a loved one can decrease pain. Time's up. Story four is true. Gazing at the image of a loved one can decrease pain, for example, during a medical procedure. That finding is in the journal Psychological Science. It had been known that the presence of a loved one could decrease pain, but the new research finds that Just having their picture available helps, too. And story three is true. Sixty-four email accounts of the 10,000 analyzed used 123456 as the password. Many people use password as their password. I actually got into another Scientific American staffer's computer by trying password as the password. So at least make it a bit harder on hackers by coming up with a decent password. Something like password123456, even. Story two is true. The robotic spider is a tiny remote-control camera with legs. For an alternative to conventional colonoscopy, it would be, you know, inserted and then walk on its own up the intestine and send back pictures. The major advantage over a real spider is it doesn't lay eggs. All of which means that story one about a new species of algae discovered in Loch Ness is totally bogus. But they did find something unusual in the lock. Researchers looking for any signs of a big sea creature instead discovered thousands of golf balls. In camera views, the balls appear to possibly be strange mushrooms, but mushrooms don't have Titleist or Top Flight written on them. seems that some people practice their driving on the beach on the lake, and many of the balls have settled in at the bottom over 700 feet deep. The field of submerged golf balls would make an excellent hiding place for any monster to lay eggs. Well, that's it for this episode of Science Talk. Check out scientificamerican.com for the latest science news, including our special package on all the science-related Nobel Prizes that were awarded last week in this. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Oh.